and uh, we'll see where that takes us. But uh, we're going to cover seven chapters this evening. Hey, special. All right, y'all ready? Yeah. Yes. Amen. Uh, Paul, pray for us. Mighty God, we give you glory tonight, Father, that we are here tonight under one roof, Lord, unified yes, by your Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus. So would you speak to us and speak through us, mighty God? Yes. May our hearts be prepared to receive the Lord. We thank you and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to give you all a bit of a schedule. Uh, you know, the great love of my life is this foundations class. I try to prioritize everything else that I do uh, around it. In some form or fashion, I've been teaching a line-by-line class one night a week for more than 20 years. Uh, the consistent, in-depth engagement of the biblical text has been the most fruitful thing that I've ever done. Uh, not having been a scholar, not having been formally educated, the words taught me everything that I needed to know for life and godliness. And uh, there's Amen. nothing that I prefer to do more than this. Um, I want to provide a kind of continuity of biblical narrative, though. And we're having so many interruptions in our schedule, that's... That's difficult to do, particularly with the way that the three pastors are traveling lately. So we're going to take a few liberties with the next several classes. I'm going to announce them in advance, tell you what they're about, so that you can be studying for them. Fair enough? Thus far, we have covered 13 chapters of Joshua. I'm sorry, 12 chapters. We're in the 13th tonight. Uh, Just to remind you of those topics, because... Those 12 uh, classes comprise uh, 26 or 7 hours of teaching. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's quite a bit. That's more than I have found anybody else that's recorded the entire book of Joshua, and we're, we're not through it yet. Um, we began in an overview of Joshua's placement in the Tanakh. And where is it placed in the Tanakh? The prophets. In the prophets. That's really interesting. First and foremost, Joshua was meant to warn the soul, which is the role of the prophets. Uh, in chapter 1, we called it Meshereth. Do you remember what that Hebrew word was? It's Moses' teacher, his servant, his aide, his minister, is really the best way to think about that. Joshua was an answer to Moses' prayer. Uh, in chapter 2, we called it Tikwa. Anybody remember what tikwa is? It's a scarlet cord, but it's also the Hebrew word for hope. In chapter 3, we looked at Beth Bara, the house of the crossing. And when I say we looked at that, we of course looked at 10 other things too. It's just what we titled it to have a way to uh, remember it. In chapter 4, we looked at the whole nation and two monuments. One in the middle of the river and one on the other side. Um... In chapter 5, Gilgal and the Passover. In chapter 6, the Heptatic Plan. In chapter 7, victory in the face of defeat. In chapter 8, a core is not an anchor. In chapter 9, making your mistakes work for you. I was impressed with that title. I thought that was a fun one. Mm-hmm. Neat way to look at the Gibeonites. Yes. Uh, We broke 10 into three groupings, and um, 
10 was a situational overview. It had to do with sanctification in the millennium, also uh, haram and shalom, which I hope you all got something out of a three-part series on chapter 10. Uh, chapters 11 and 12 had to do with defection, defections, uh, destruction, uh, and deities. Uh, we got in-depth into the history of the Nephilim, the nature of a pantheon with the Most High God being the only true God. Um, Well, that takes us to tonight. Tonight we're going to cover chapters 13 through 19. You can title it, A Summary of the Allotment of the Land. Because that's what's happening in 13 through 19. How many chapters is that? Seven. 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 (laughs) Next week, the 23rd, we're going to cover Cities of Refuge. That will be chapter 20 and 21. Cities of Refuge. So if you want to study beforehand... That's what you should be looking at is Joshua 20 and 21. It'll take place Monday the 23rd, and the title will be Cities of Refuge. Monday the 30th, I am in Israel, so you can show up, but I won't be here. Pastor Wade won't be here, and Pastor Matthew won't be here. Uh, We're going to go learn and absorb some things so that we have something else to teach you. Monday, November 6th. That's an evening of sending and prophecy for the Brassos. Amen. We're headed to Peru. Amen. Monday, November 13th, we're going to return to chapter 22 and the misunderstood altar. There is an altar that is erected in chapter 22, and it is a glorious story. Uh, We're going to finish the book of Joshua in the study. It, It will conclude Monday, November 20th with chapters 23 and 24. That's Joshua's farewell address, and that is the week of Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. You can see some of the impetus for the reason that we're covering chapters and groupings the way that we are. I don't want to get into our holiday season and uh, have four-week gaps. Also, tonight, just so that you know, let's put these on the screen for a second. Tonight, you're going to have seven divisions in your notes. It should pop up on the screen here in just a minute. Okay. Uh, We're technologically working on it. about that. We'll get rid of that audio sound here in a minute. And uh, tonight, we're going to summarize the seven chapters like this. Buffers and borderline believers, the love of money, lease never to own, fighting for a future, the north, the south, and the Zeholophad anomaly. I know all of you know what that is already. Seven tribes, Lots and Shiloh, and then the seventh one is leaders go last. Does that whet your interest at all? I know people ask what pastors do all day. Today, I prepared seven messages for you. Day before, we were digging sewer lines, but if you want to know what we're doing tomorrow, you'll have to come see us. Okay? It's our tradition that Jennifer reads the chapter. We're not going to read... 
chapters 13 through 19. I don't want to do that to her. Uh, we're going to read chapter 13 to give us a taste of what you're about to find. And then we're going to pick key uh, scriptures from the other chapters as we go. Okay, So it's a bit of a departure from our line-by-line -line study, but I think it'll bless you this way. Those of you that remember things like cryptoanalysis, where we take a genealogy and you define them, I want to encourage you, in your time, look at these chapters. Look at the names of the cities. I'll give you a few of them tonight. Look at the people that are involved. There is always what is going on on the surface of the text and what is going on beneath the text, and it's beautiful. You, you could never read these chapters and study them in any depth without coming away with the idea that there's a uh, continuity of Scripture, uh, an integrated design, something that points well beyond the mind of man. And the more you study it and the more you look at it, the more you'll find that. I think last week, or whenever we were together last, we were talking about heavenly motivations for which tribes were uh, planted where and which people groups had to be exterminated versus just defeated. Uh, there are so many layers of stories going on here that the book of Joshua is every bit as complex as the book of Revelation, and yet it's very simple. It's about an active, overcoming, victorious faith that expresses itself in the real world. Amen. Nothing Amen. could be more useful for our time than that, could it? That's right. Well, Jennifer, pick up with us in uh, chapter 13 and verse 1. And uh, when we get through that chapter, we will begin with the subject of buffers and borderline believers. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and Geshurites from Sihor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ephron on the north, and all of it counted as Canaanite, the territory of five Philistine rulers, in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Elkron, that of the Avites. From the north, all the land of the Canaanites, from Araha of the Sidonians, as far as Apec, the region of the Amorites. The area of the Gabalites and all the Lebanon to the east, from Baal, Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo, Hamath. As for the inhabitants of the mountain regions, from Lebanon to Mizrapoth, Maine, that is, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. The other half of Manasseh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, had received their inheritance that Moses had given them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned it to them. It extended from uh, Eror on the rim of the Aron Gorge and from the town in the middle of the gorge and included the whole plateau of Medba as far as Dibon and all the towns of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, out to the border of the Amorites. It also included Gilead, the territory of the people of Geshur and Maka, all of Mount Hermon and all of Bashan as far as Sakla. That is, the whole kingdom of Og in Bashan, who had reigned in Ashroth and Edri, and had survived as one of the last of the Rephaites. Moses had defeated them and taken over their land, 
But the Israelites did not drive out all of the people of Geshur and Maka, so they continued to live, live among the Israelites to this day. But to the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance, since the offering made by the fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, and, and are their inheritance as he promised them. This is what Moses had given to the tribe of Reuben, clan by clan, the territory of Aror for the rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town of the middle of the gorge, and the whole plateau past Medla, to Heshbon and all of its towns in the plateau, including Dibon, Bam. The Moth Ball, Bel Bel Mion, <laughs> Jedhaz, Kenmoth, Mephath, Kiriath, Sidma, Zareth, Shahar on the hill of the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Shemoth, all the towns on the plateau in the entire realm of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon. Moses had defeated him and the Midianite chiefs. Evev, Rechem, Zor, Hur, and Reba, princess, princess of allied with Sihon, who lived in that country. In addition to those slain in the battle, the Israelites had put the sword to Balaam, son of Beor, Amen. who practiced divination. The boundary of the Reubenites was the bank of the Jordan. These towns and their villages were their inheritance of the Reubenites, clan by clan. This is what Moses had given to the tribe of Gad, clan by clan the territory of Jazir, all the towns of Gilead, and half the Amorite <coughs> county as far as Aror, near Rabbanah. And from Heshbon to Ramoth, Mizpah, and Betomim, and from Manhattan to the territory of Debir. And in the valley Beth Haram, Beth Namah, Succoth, and Zaphon, for the rest of the real of Sihon, king of Heshbon. East side of the Jordan, the territory to the end of the Sea of Kinnera. These towns and their villages were the inheritance of the Gadites, clan by clan. This is what Moses had given to the half-tribe of Manasseh, that is, to the half-family of the descendants of Manasseh, clan by clan. The territory extending from Manhamin, and including all of Bashan, the entire realm of Og, king of Bashan. All of the settlements of Jar and Bashan, 60 towns, half of Gilead and Ashroth and Adir the royal cities of Og and Bashan. This was for the descendants of Machir, son of Manasseh, for half of the sons of Machir, clan of clan. This is the inheritance Moses had given when he was in the plain of Moab, across the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance to the Lord, the God of Israel, to their inheritance as he had promised them. I hope you noticed a couple things like Balaam's mentioned there. Yeah. Uh, notice the number of times that the Lord says the Levites don't get an inheritance. He's their inheritance. Their inheritance are offerings by fire. And there's lots of boundaries given because we're describing territorial allotments. The next chapters go exactly the same way. And because we're talking about a land that you're not intimately familiar with and names that were given there um, in 1400 B.C., uh, obviously it's a little difficult to picture. Before the evening's over, I'm going to show you maps of where each tribe ended up, how you relate to them, what their major groupings are, those kind of things. That'll come towards the end. But rather than read through seven chapters that list those boundaries, 
I'm going to commit that to you and your private studies. Uh, I wanted to start with you uh, with a buffer zone and the borderline believer. So, uh, Chris, read the 13th chapter and the 8th verse, and it's uh, where we're drawing this from. Joshua 13, 8 says this, The other half of Manasseh, the Reubenites, and the Gadites, had received the inheritance that Moses had given them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned it to them. So the path of the Israelites as they came from Egypt and into Israel was not south to north. And it could not be west to east because there's an ocean there. They actually circled around to the east side of Israel, what is today Israel, and crossed the Jordan in a direction that goes right to left, just like they read. Uh, It's an interesting note that most languages that originate west of Jerusalem go left to right, and most languages that originate east of Jerusalem go right to left. I don't have to tell you which one's correct, do I? (laughs) Manasseh, the Reubenites, and the Gadites all received an allotment on the east side of the Jordan. Their original motivation for that is recorded in Numbers, and I want to read it just to refresh your memory. Who wants to do that? Paul, take Numbers 32 and read 1 through 5, 1 through 6. Numbers 32, 1 through 6. The Reubenites and Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jezer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and said to the leaders of the community and said, Adorah, Deban, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elileh, Sabam, Nebo, and Beon, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let us let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? So tell me, Christian, what is the reason that the... Reubenites, Gadonites, and half of the Manassites wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. That's good. It's good for cows. And uh, what did Moses challenge them with? Is it right for you to sit with your cows while your countrymen are at war? Interestingly enough, that's exactly where the church is today. We have found what we want. We're building bigger and bigger church buildings. We're making things nicer and nicer for ourselves while our countrymen are at war. And the question still remains. Is it right that we sit on our salvation while the other soldiers are at war? Is that right? And it turns out that there's another problem here. If you choose your land based on what is good for your cows, you have... Maybe rightly discern what's good for your cows, but what about what's good for your kids? It's another problem Americans have. Hmm. We can pull up to our daycare and our 7 Series BMW and drop off our one-year-old if we want to because it's good for our income. But is it good for our kids? I want you to hear how this is expressed in the prophets. We just read from the law. Now let's read from the prophets. Who wants that one? Timo, take Joshua 22, 
24 through 25. Joshua 22, 24 through 25. No, we did it for fear that someday our descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us, and you, you Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. See, their positioning was good for their cows, but it also meant that they were on the border closest to the Ammonites, closest to the Moabites. Additionally, there were natural barriers between them and the rest of the Israel, uh, the rest of the Israelites. They chose their habitation based on what they thought would be the most lucrative. But they failed to consider the effect that it would have on their children being so close to the enemy and the effect that it would have on them having such obstacles between them and the place of worship they're supposed to go to. Well, it's a strange thing, but I don't meet very many Christians that choose their house based on where their church is. They often do choose their church based on where their house is. Can I tell you what's wrong with that? You drive across town to have Tamika cut your hair. Right? Because that's important. That's right. But you tell me it's too far to go to church because it takes 35 minutes. When you make your life choices based on cows, your kids might suffer. It's interesting that before the seven-year campaign, all they cared about was where their cows were. At the end of the seven-year campaign, they're starting to realize, we're a long ways from the rest of everybody. We're separated from fellowship. This might not be good for us. Well, so far we've seen in the law that their motivation was uncovered. The law does that. It shows you your heart. We see in the prophets the warning of the potential danger in the future. Now let's see in the writings how they walked this out. Let's take Jacob over here. First Chronicles 5, and let's read 18 through 26. First Chronicles 5, 18-26 The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 men ready for military service. Able-bodied men who could handle a shield and sword, who could use a bow, and who were trained for battle. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jeter, Nathish, and Nodab. They were helped in fight. They were helped in fighting them, and God handed the Hagrites and all their allies over to them, because they cried out to him during the battle. He answered their prayers because they trusted in him. They seized the livestock of the Hagrites, 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep, and 2,000 donkeys. They also took 100,000 people captive, and many others fell slain, because the battle was God's, and they occupied the land until, until the exile. The people of the half-tribe of Manasseh were numerous. They settled in the land of Bashan to Baal Hermon, that is, in Sinir, Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their families, Ephor, Ishai, Elil, Azrael, Jeremiah, 
Odin, Devaya, Jadio. They were brave warriors, famous men, and heads of their families. But they were unfaithful to God, of the, to the God of their fathers, and prostituted themselves to the gods of the people of the land, whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile. He took them to Halah, Hebar, Hera, and the river of Gozan, where they are to this day. Wow. In the law, you see that they chose it because it was good for their cows. In the prophets, you see that they began to be concerned that they're very close to the enemy and they're very far from their friends and there's a physical border between them and the place God is going to set up His name and maybe they didn't choose so well. But they failed to heed the warning of the prophets and so what happens eventually? By the time we get into the writings to see how this worked out for them, we see them first going into exile. Man, have you ever been warned? You had an inkling? You knew maybe this wasn't right? But in the warning, you just justified yourself. In the warning, you actually dug in deeper to what you knew was wrong. And then it came upon you and there was nothing you could do about it. That's where they find themselves. There's a significant message in this for us tonight. We want to be aware of living on the borderline. We never want to position ourselves as a buffer between the righteousness of God and the practice of the world. When we stand between the righteousness of God and the way the world's living, and we're saying, well, let's, there has to be some metal ground. We, we, have to, we have to help things out here. That never turns out well for Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never. We need to call righteousness, righteousness. We need to call wickedness, wickedness, and not live near the edge. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a pastor who refuses to let you call a freedom a sin. I, I, I absolutely refuse to do that. But we need to call sin, sin. Amen. You know, and the biggest problem may not be somebody's fermented grape juice. The biggest problem might be their sinful, wicked, worldly attitude. And when we major on minors and we uh, fail to rightly discern what God's word is, you know what? It's not good for our kids. They grow up in captivity even while they're in proximity to the people of God. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. This is why the church is pretty good at producing hellions. I mean, devilish people that know the Word of God and just don't care. That's really different than worldlings. People who never knew. I mean, i got to tell you, my family a few generations back, they, they just didn't know. I mean, they were doing good just to somewhat keep their genetic line pure. I mean, keep <laughs> brothers away from sisters. The worldly church that lives in a borderline fashion raises something entirely different. They speak the word of God out of one side of their mouth, but their practices are completely different. I want to show you some of this in Jesus' teachings. So, uh, Peyton, take Mark 2, 16 through 17. Judah, take John 2, 23 through 25. Uh, Gabriel, take uh, Revelation 3, 3 through 5. Can you say that Mark scripture again? The Mark scripture is Mark 2, 16 through 17. 
And in almost every setting, we're going to go Law of Prophets writings or some variation from each group. <coughs> Mark 2, 16 through 17. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax, and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. It's true that Jesus ate with sinners, but do you know what Jesus did not do when he was eating with sinners? Sin. Sin. The doctor did not become unhealthy to be with them. In fact, his presence in their life was a reminder of what the standard is. This is not compromise. This is light shining in darkness. But we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to position ourselves among sinners, are we having a bigger influence on them or them on us? My experience is that Christians that are comfortable hanging out in dark places become dark. That's my experience. I would much rather stand in the center of the country closest to the sanctuary and make brief trips, or rather invite others to the higher ground. Yes. Yeah. It did not go well for these tribes because they chose based on what was lucrative for them, what was easy for them, and they failed to understand the consequences it would have on their family over time. You ought not choose your occupation based on what you can make the most money at. You ought not choose your house based on the local school system. You better choose it based on where God himself has shown you you need to live. Otherwise, there will be consequences for you. And when warnings come your way, you just dig deeper and say, I can't because I own a house. I can't because I educated myself for this job. And all the while, your cows will do better than your kids. Uh How about uh, John 2? John 2, 23 through 25. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. You see, while Jesus was ministering with people, he knew exactly what they were. He was never deceived by what they were. He was never caught off guard. But if you're honest, have you ever befriended somebody that you knew was not particularly godly and then were surprised with how ungodly they were? Me too. Me too. Praise God the Lord will let you get stung by that occasionally to remind you of the difference between those things. We do not want to be borderline believers. We want with all of our heart to be dead fast in the center of God's presence, don't we? Amen. Okay, how about Revelation 3? Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father. A few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. That's an incredible statement. We want to be among the few who have no contaminants on us from what is around us. 
That's not an easy thing to do. You're going to have to be really, really wise about what you can and can't do. And the damning thing for a Christian are the things that he believes that he can do, and he was wrong. You understand? Yeah. Oh, I can handle that until you can't. See, those are the damning things for a Christian. I'm not advocating a life of restriction, but I'm telling you, if you stand close to the sharks, you're going to get bitten. Jesus ministered among lost people knowing exactly what they were. He was never deceived by it. This is the reason that James says what it says. This is James 4, 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Do you hear that? But I thought Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners because he represented righteousness to them. But he never became like them. He was not a buffer to help ease them into the church. The entire seeker-sensitive movement is of the devil. And the church that created it just named uh, co-ed pastors. A female pastor, not married, to another man, not married, but a pastor. You you follow me? Mm -hmm. We now have a household with somebody else's daddy and somebody else's mommy leading everyone. Okay, There's nothing about this that's godly. And I'm not interested in the seeker-sensitive movement. I'm interested in you. Do you need to adjust your boundary lines? You must ask the question. Reuben was supposed to be the firstborn tribe. He's supposed to be the strongest, the best, the first sign of his father's strength. But he's not. Do you remember why he wasn't? He went to Bela. He, he, He slept with his father's concubine. Do you see how a bad choice there affected everyone else? Now his descendants make a choice to live somewhere that affects the future as well. Your choices have consequences. And I want to encourage you to worry less about your cows and more about your kids. Amen. You know when people start worrying about their kids? When they're 15. That's a problem. I mean, that is an extraordinary problem. Do you know when you should be thinking about it? Before you conceive them. Come on. In the 13th chapter, we're going to keep going with this. I wanted you to begin to notice that the tribal allotments are assigned by God, but they were influenced by men and their desires. Your boundary stones might fall in a specific place because it's what you fought for and what you wanted. If you fight for the minimum, if you fight for the lukewarm, if you fight for the ridiculously, absurdly carnal, you might get what you want. All you ever have to do is listen to the Israelites ask for quail. And you find out he gave them the quail that they wanted until they didn't want anymore because it was coming out their nose and more than 20,000 dropped dead. This takes us into our next subject. Somebody uh, who's going to be somebody. Rob, take um, the 13th chapter and the 22nd verse. Still talking about allotments. So everybody's going to need to leave your finger in Joshua tonight because we're going to stay in Joshua. We're going to work through the chapters. In addition to those slain in battle, the Israelites had put to the sword Balaam, son of Beor, who practiced divination. Balaam, son of Beor, who practiced divination. 
I got to tell you, Balaam's a tough story. All right? I'm going to give you three scriptures in a row that are going to help paint a picture all by themselves. You ready for them? Yeah. Yeah. Brenton, you take Jude 11. Gabe Sutherland, you take 2 Peter 2, 15 through 16. Natalie Piro, Revelation 2, 14 through 15. soon as you get it. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. In Jude 11, we have something called the error of Balaam that was the result of wanting payment. We find out that Balaam was money motivated. And he's called the error of Balaam in Jude 11. <coughs> Waiting on you, Southerner. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. What do you hear in that verse? We have a way of Balaam, a way of life defined by Balaam, and this time he's not rushing for payment. What does it say? He loved the wages of wickedness. Do you hear how the same elements are, are present? Okay, Revelation 2, 14 and 15. That's good, sweetheart. What started off as error because he wanted payment became a way of life because he loved the wages of wickedness and it ended up a doctrine, a teaching, a systematic teaching that allowed sexual immorality. Wow. You can see the escalation in Balaam's life. See, he didn't start out as a wicked guy. At least that's not how the scripture presents him. You know, Balaam's life ends up being called somebody who practices divination. But is that how it started? No. Mm -hmm. Error turns into a way of life, and the way of life has to be justified doctrinally. Mm -hmm. This is how heresy happens. You know, uh, we call him Rob No Hell Bell now. There was a time he was maybe the finest teacher I've ever heard. I guarantee you that there is an error in there regarding homosexuality that turned into a way of life for him, and now his doctrine must support it and defend it. Oh, shame on him, right? But how many things in our life does our heart want and then our mind tend to justify? In the last few months, I've seen Christians do unspeakable things and act like they're not doing anything wrong. God's telling me to. Are you kidding me? It's happening over and over and over, and there's a reason for it. There's always something in it for them. And let me tell you clearly, the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. And I have never met people that love money more than the American Christian. They actually believe God is the way they can get it. In our first example in our allotments, cows became more important than kids. But the root there is money. In our second one, one of the more powerful prophets in the whole Bible 
one of the first to refer to a Messiah as a coming king, was corrupted by an error in wanting a payment for something. Have you ever wanted little credit for something you did? I recently talked to a man who is so eaten up with jealousy of other missionaries, so upset that he's not getting enough credit for what he did, that he's just slandering everybody he knows now. He didn't start that way. A little bit of error needing payment, needing recognition, turns into a way of life and a wage that's being paid to you. That way of life has to be justified somewhere so you begin to corrupt God's word. She wanted the fruit. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she began to twist God's word and say, said, don't even touch it, which is not what he said. And before long, we have a whole new doctrine that has allowed her to do what she's done. You see how this works out over and over and over? Yeah. <laughs> Let's look at where Balaam's life started just for some perspective here. Um, Mr. Linton, take uh, Numbers 24, 15 through 17. This is the same guy who said this. Numbers 24, 15 through 17. Then he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor. The oracle of one whose eyes sees clearly. The oracle of the one who hears the words of God. Who has knowledge from the Most High. Who sees a vision from the Almighty. Who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. <laughs> Listen, you can say whatever you want to about Balaam. He's one of the first guys that describes the military conquest of Jesus Christ. He, he is describing something 1,500 years before it comes on the scene and before any Jewish prophet has existed to do it. That's incredible. His error grows into a way of life. It needed to be justified, so it became a doctrinal fig leaf to cover his nakedness. This is why the Bible warns us so fiercely. Nick, take Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Sam, take 1 Timothy 6, 10. Bosch, take Matthew 6, 22 through 24. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Christian, think through this for a second. What is the natural contrast that you draw from this? Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can either cling to money for your security, or what can you cling to? Him. Amen. Does it mean you can't have anything? No. He said, be content with what you have. But if you think the next car that you buy, the next TV set, or even the next meal is going to bring you happiness, look in the rearview mirror and see if it ever has. What you might need to do is put down the remote and get on your knees. I mean, have we seen anybody recently that was buying stuff to make themselves happy? Where did that end up? 
Think through this. The Bible has been warning us for thousands of years on this subject. Let me ask you, how many of you made more this year than you did five years ago? That's kind of the normal way of things, right? We've got to keep up with inflation, whatever else. How much would you make and it would be enough? Have you ever thought if you made this much, it would be okay? <laughs> if, if I could just get the... And you were broke when you made that amount? Yeah. <laughs> I was broke when I made 20 grand, broke when I made 50 grand, broke when I made 80 grand. You know, I was always broke. Because the flesh wants what it wants when it wants it. I now live... I don't know what it is, Pastor. We're, we're $26,000 a year or something. $18,000. I don't even know. Amen. We have less expendable income than we've ever had. I've never been happier. Amen. What if you set a limit and said, I would be content right here, and then you never break your word, and you assume that anything that comes in beyond that was for the kingdom of God? Amen. Come on. Oh, that's a radical Ooh. thought. Uh, we hadn't even started talking about selling what you have for the poor. Mm. We hadn't even talked about sharing what you have with everyone else. We're talking about just finding a place you could be content. Mm. Goodness. I was reading Wesley's biography one time. He had just put some paintings, modest paintings, in his London flat. And then he met a woman that didn't have winter clothes. And he reached into his pocket knowing he needed to give her something and there was nothing left. And he felt that hell was going to swallow him because he had clothed his house and failed to clothe God's creature. He said that day that he set his salary and never moved it for the rest of his life. Come on, saints. Where are you really motivated? It's time to examine that. Are you making Balaam's error right now? Is it becoming a way of life? Do you have a neat little system worked around it so that you can justify it? We need to be careful. Money's not evil. There's nothing evil about it. If you think your money's evil, bring it to us. We will pray. It'll be just fine. <laughs> what is evil is our insatiable need for more of it. Yeah. That's what's evil. Look back through your tax returns over the last 10 years. Tell me that there's a place that you would be happy. We always need more. But do you always need more? How about 1 Timothy 6? 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced Mm. themselves with many griefs. What does being eager for money do? It pierces you with griefs. It causes you to wander from the faith. And we have this damnable gospel that is no gospel at all. It's right out of the gullet of hell that says if you serve God, you're going to get more and more money. Mm. These people deserve the fire of hell. They deserve it. They're leading people astray and robbing the poorest neighborhoods to treat their pastors like pimps because their pastors are treating them like whores. Saints, We better get this right. It's easy to point to the most extravagant excesses. But how sits this with your soul tonight? Matthew 6, 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It turns out that 2,000 years ago when Jesus said that, it was true, and it's just as true today. Mm -hmm. It turns out that he was actually right, that he's the eternal word. And we failed to understand it. There is no disconnect between the eye as the lamp of the body and you can't serve both God and money. There's a connection between what your eye sees and wants and who you're going to serve. Mm. See, there's a connection. That's why you don't want to live on the borderlands with a buffer between you and God. Mm. You want your eyes on the things that are holy to remind you what you really want. The, 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 the truth is, is the longer you spend time in Egypt, the more Egypt starts to look normal to you. You need to keep your eye on the right thing. In Hebrew, this is, uh, it's actually written far more roughly. I, this is a Greek passage with a Hebrew thought underlying it. The, one of the older translations says, the man with the good eye. In Hebrew, an ayen tovah, a good eye, is an eye that is generous. Now, that's an oversimplification, but that's what it is. A man with a generous eye's whole life is full of light. Because you can't serve both God and money. So the man who is generous is uh, fending off his desire for money and proving it by giving to others. Now, the truth is, Ayen Tova is more than a generous eye. A good eye is the one that sees what God sees. Maybe this is why the scripture tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, yeah, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, you may have to go to work. You may have to stare at a computer screen a certain number of hours a day. But there is time that you're not at work. What are your eyes fixed on? Come on. Is work getting on you? Mm. Are you transforming your workplace? Amen. See, I, for one, want my eye trained on what God wants. This begins to change my heart so that I want what God wants. Can I tell you, when I'm in a foreign country and I see motorcycles for a while, I watch the motorcycles, I want a motorcycle. When I come home, I think about a motorcycle for a while. There's nothing more ridiculous than a fat guy on a motorcycle. (laughs) Maybe a sidecar is more ridiculous. Very little more ridiculous than that. What your eye tends to set on the most is is what you tend to desire. Be careful staring at your neighbor's pool. Before long, you will need one. Do do you know what I mean? How many of you went to shop for a puppy? You don't shop for puppies. You come home with them. You beginning to get me? But if you're putting your eye on God's goals every day, if God's goals are what they're, instead of where your cows feed, if the allotment that you want for your tribal inheritance is what God wants, then that's what you'll aim for. I mean, you need to be careful what you're setting your eyes on. There's nothing more addictive in our society, not, not crack, not heroin, not sex. Nothing is more addictive than finances. And it's corrupting everyone around us. It's reached some I didn't think it could reach, and not because they didn't have enough of it, because they had more than they needed. That's what got them. That's crazy. Nothing could be worse for you than to be able to buy what you want to buy. Amen. Nothing could be worse than that. It's the poor who are rich in faith. When you have to ask the Lord and then He provides it, then you know that you needed it. 
Amen. There should be more amens for that. It's okay. I know why there's not more amens for that. Let's go ahead and get out of the 13th chapter. Um, Christy, read 14 verse 1 and verse 4. Now these are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, Joshua's son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. And then verse 4. For the sons of Joseph had become two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. The the Levites received no share of the land, but only towns to live in, with pasture lands for their flocks and herds. So we have gone through buffers and borderline believers and love of money, and now we're talking about lease never to own. There's a reason for that. You see in this chapter that um, they're given allotments. Uh, But this is not the only verse in the Bible. And everything in the Scripture is read in the light of the rest of the Scripture. So, uh, J.J., Read to us Leviticus 25, 23 through 24. Leviticus 25, 23 through 24. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, I'm sorry. Don't you love that? Yeah. I'm going to give you an inheritance, but it's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to give you an allotment, but you're an alien and a tenant there. That's true. I mean, you, you, you hear the way in which God reserves final ownership for everything? Yeah. We know the, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. He gives them an inheritance which says, of what is mine... I'm going to let you live right here. But you must never forget something. I own it, and I own you. Amen. I don't want to get all preachy. But do you own the things you have, or do they own you? How would you know? Well, let your mind wander for a minute, and visualize yourself giving them away. If that causes retractions in places and wincing in other places, then they they might own you. We value things we paid a bunch of money for, whether they're valuable or not. Nothing's truer uh, about that than in fashion. Why is these, these jeans $80? Because some... Homosexual in Milan put his sticker on. I mean, it is. Why are they worth more? Why do we perceive more value? Because it cost us something to get them, and we now have them. Uh, they might have you. I watched a woman pull up today in a Bentley, and it was so sad because she ran over the curb on her way up, and when she opened the door, she hit the post that was next to her. She's obviously got a lot of money. question is, does she have it or does it have her? You know what I could tell when she pulled up? She's not happy. 
She got filled with the Holy Ghost. She'd gladly give away a Bentley until some foolish person tells her she can have the Holy Ghost and the Bentley. Then she'll end up with a doctor and a way of life that is based on error. Can I give you all a couple of scriptures? So Mandy, Mandy, take Joshua 14.9 and uh, Libby, Libby, take Leviticus 18.26 through 28 and uh, Ella, (laughs) Ezekiel 36.16 through 19 and uh, Steve, take Lamentations 4.13. And uh, Cassidy, take Lamentations 2.14. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. See, These same people that are receiving their inheritance and their allotment are clearly told that the land belonged to God and that they're alien tenants. This is even more clear for the priest who have zero level of ownership. This chapter provides us with an excellent example of God's leasing terms. The obligation of the leasee is wholehearted obedience. And your habitation is contingent upon that obedience. You can't pay God back for the land. Who would you mail the check to? Robert Tilton or some TV pastor, obviously, right? No, the way that you show that you love him is you fulfill your vows in his presence. You die for him. The way that you pay back his goodness is you live in wholehearted obedience. Caleb is a perfect example of that. God said, I'm going to bring you all into the land. But he didn't bring any of them into the land. Because they weren't obedient. Just Caleb and Joshua, who were wholehearted, they were paying rent on the land. With every act of sacrifice, they were showing that the Lord is their Lord. They were showing that they loved Him more than the possessions. That they could possess something without it possessing them. That they loved the Lord. Two out of millions. But I'm sure we would all handle wealth very well, right? Okay, how about Leviticus 18? Leviticus 18, 26 through 28. But you must, you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Do you hear there's no, there's no kinfolk deal here? There's no special arrangement with God. He threw out the people before you, and He'll throw you out too if you, if you don't serve Him wholeheartedly. You know, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? I don't want anything close enough to my heart to steal a part of it. I don't want that. You know, you could sit in Sugarland and see a Bentley and think, that's pretty nice. When we saw a Bentley in downtown Chennai, it made us want to vomit. You know why? It was nearly rolling over people who were starving to death. So it was obscene in that environment. But here in the borderland. Wow. Wow. Uh oh. 
Please don't think the bubble you live in is the world. Don't do it. Instead, ask yourself, am I living in the allotment God has given me? And if I'm not, what do I have to do to get there? We can read about these tribes and argue about which Goshen we're talking about, which Jericho of the Jordan we're talking about. And I can spend a long time with scholastic debate with you. And I do enjoy those things. There's going to be a few technical arguments tonight. I even think there's a wow moment or two. But what I want more than anything else is for us to be content with what God is doing for us and us be looking to do for other people at every turn. I'm not trying to punish somebody who makes $300,000 versus $30,000. I've never cared. I'm going to get my eighteen grand, no matter what I do. I think it's been set for 10 years now. That's, that's where we live. And, uh, and don't you dare feel sorry for me. I've never been happier. Never. Amen. Uh, I am living out my dream. The question is, if you're making three, four, five, six, seven times that, and you're not happy... What would it take to make you happy? Mm. Need to be careful that you have not set your eye on something that cannot make you happy. How about Ezekiel 36, 16? Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. If nothing else, the Bible is uh, it's graphic. It's graphic. God will throw away our uh, actions and possessions. He will drive you out of a land the same way somebody would discard a menstrual rag that was well used. And why? He goes on to say, because it defiles his name among the nations. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, obviously, I don't think that we're all hiding piles of cash under our bed. I mean, that, that's not the issue. <laughs> the real issue is that we not be so close to the border that we think we can live like the world around us. Yeah. The real issue is that we not love money. We love the Lord. The, the real issue is that we not own anything that we lease never to own. He owns it all. And it's so much easier to say everything I have belongs to the Lord than it is to live that way. I hear it all of the time from people. And you know, I've been preaching with the same examples for so long that you've heard it. If your car really belongs to the Lord, then how about I borrow it tomorrow? No, that makes you nervous. Then it doesn't belong to the Lord, does it? Do you follow? When the Lord has ownership of everything, then nothing will have ownership of you. That is important. How about this? Right now, this second, you were called to name somewhere? Israel. Israel came out. Who doesn't want to be called to Israel, right? You're called to Israel. What are all the reasons that you can't go this second? Then do you own them or do they own you? Have your possessions barred you in? are you not even free to do the things the Lord would tell you to do because you never expected him to tell you to do it you were just too busy building your own kingdom Mm. I woke up one day and realized that I had barred myself in from what God had for me 
I started to reduce my life in every way possible. And the most amazing thing happened. It's a scriptural truth. The more I reduced my life, the more the Lord enlarged it. Amen. Is that crazy? Yeah. The more I, I sought to live on less, the more I made, the more I could give away. But then you know what the temptation is. You feel good and entitled to just a little more, don't you? Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Keep your vow and watch what happens. We started doing this as a church, and when we could not pay our rent, and we couldn't <laughs> many times, we could not pay our rent, we started giving away $100,000 a year in the poorest countries in the world, building things like orphanages that the P-Rows are going to go visit. We started doing that. He said, well, how if y'all didn't have it? When we agreed not to take one more penny than we said, God began sending more pennies than we needed. Amen. Amen. Now, don't get me wrong. We still have times we don't know how we're going to pay our rent. Mm-hmm. Right? He's always testing our faith in that way. You need to figure out where your allotment is, where your inheritance is. Okay. I want to show you where the breakdown happens. Uh, the, uh, Lamentations 4. Lamentations 4, verse 13. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed blood within her, the blood of the righteous. Okay, you remember Balaam's error that turned into a way of life, that turned into a doctrine? When priests have doctrines that are based on a wrong way of life and based on an error, the problem with the nation is the priest because the priests are teaching people that they can get it wrong and it's okay, nothing's going to happen. That is happening all around us. And because we live on the borderland, when there are priests that stand up and say, that is of the devil, we sound harsh. We sound uh, uh, controlling. Or any one of a list of drop-down menu things that I hear all of the time. Uh, It's not any of those things. It's a desire to get our doctrine right, our way of life right. To weed out even the smallest contaminant because the last line of defense for a nation is its priest. And if the priests are contaminated, there's no hope for the nation. Mm. Guys, next time you turn on TBN, let that thought sink in for a minute. If the priests are this contaminated, what hope is there for a nation? Lamentations 2.14 the visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. If a vision is false and worthless because it doesn't expose sin, then what kind of vision, what kind of sermon, what kind of spiritual enlightenment do we want that would be worthwhile? One that exposes sin. Do you love preaching, teaching, Biblical exhortation that exposes your sin, or do you hate it? Do do you see what's at stake there? I have noticed something. The same people that call me unaccountable and uncorrectable cannot handle the suggestion that they may not have done everything perfectly. That's why they're calling me unaccountable and uncorrectable. That's called projection, by the way. Yes. Is this what divination is, or is divination like seeing future, uh, talking to spirits, taking shrooms? What is divination? Divination is actually both of these things. So, when we are inquiring of the spiritual realm, and it is not a godly result, that's divination, in the broadest possible sense. 
So if a man's holding a Bible in his hand, but the way that he is using it does not accurately describe God, that's divination. If somebody has gone to Sister Chloe, not Chloe Pirot, whatever, I haven't watched TV in a while. If somebody goes to a tarot card reader, that is also divination. And the only difference between the tarot card reader and the person misusing the scripture when it comes down to it is one is more deceptive than the other. Mm-hmm. And I'll let you decide which. Mm-hmm. Yes? There's that last line in the, in the Hebrew where it says, the oracles they gave you were false and misleading. In the Hebrew it says that they have seen for you false burdens and causes for banishment. Wow. It's not just wow. misleading. It caused them to be banished from the country. Yeah, Lamentations clearly lays at the feet of the prophet and the priest the predicament of the nation. It clearly, clearly. So if we were overrun by a foreign power and we could say that that was God, nobody would do that anymore. We call uh, guys like Pat Robertson crazy for suggesting that God would punish us for anything. Uh, If that were to happen, if we were overrun by Russia tomorrow and that was God's hand of judgment against us, it would be the priest's fault before it would be anyone else's fault. But the priest being more guilty doesn't make you not guilty. That's true. Right? Because... Who raised up those priests? Why does Joel Osteen have the largest congregation in the United States? Why is that? Because it's what you want. Maybe not you. But it's because it's what people want. Right? That's, that's why it's there. When our behavior is contaminated, we raise up priests who are contaminated to tickle our ears. The priests and prophets are called to be a continual reminder of the need for purity and the true purpose of your allotted possessions. That's something that's missing in preaching and teaching, and I'm about to show it to you. We're not just supposed to tell you what is and is not sin. We're not just supposed to remind you about sin. We're also supposed to remind you about the need to use your allotted possessions for righteousness. See, Christianity is not a religion that says, restrict yourself, restrict yourself, and restrict yourself, and that's holy. Christianity is a religion that calls holiness obedience, and obedience holiness. Listen to the way that Jesus says it here. Uh, Chris, take Luke 16, 8 through 11. Kim, take Revelation 3, 17 through 18. And buddy, take Matthew 25, 28 through 30. Frank, 1 John 3, 16 through 19. We're setting a record number of law prophets writings tonight. Amen. Yes. Luke 16, 8 through 11. The master commended the dishonest um, manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, let's not pretend this is written to somebody besides you, <laughs> right? Let's, let's not think this is some, some lost group of people. He's obviously talking to people of the kingdom. 
Let's not pretend he's talking to the church down the road. If you can't be trusted with what he's putting in your hands now, why would he give you true spiritual riches? So then, we can see that our allotments, our inheritances, the possessions that we have, are to be used in the preference of the kingdom. If obedience was how your allotment was obtained, then obedience is how your allotment is maintained. Otherwise, you may stand before the Lord believing you are rich when in fact you are very, very poor. Have you ever noticed how we serve the Lord, we cry out to Him, we, we strengthen for Him until you get the wife you prayed for? Until you get the job that you asked for? Until you got what you asked for? But now that you have your walled cities, you have your houses, you have those things, somehow or another they begin to have you? There was a church just like us. Uh-oh. Let's read it out of Revelation. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me gold refined and fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. How terrible is it that they could be standing before the Lord, that you and I could be standing before the Lord, saying, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, and God saying, you are not. Mm-hmm. You are blind. You are naked. You are poor. But, you know, that's what deception is. Yeah. In the last two weeks, two people that I love very much are poor, blind, and naked, telling us they're all wonderful and fine and something's wrong with the rest of us. Mm-hmm. We're not angry broken hearted over it if it can happen to the best of us where does that leave the rest of us mm-hmm. yeah. we better get on our face before the Lord about this uh, uh, he's ringing it home loud and clear God gave them their allotted inheritances knowing what was going to happen he used it as a means to test them yeah. why did he give you what he's given you Uh-oh. That takes us to Matthew 25, verse 28 through 30. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw what worthless, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we talk about talents as abilities sometimes. We do. Let's just take whatever your possessions are right now and say that he gave them to you in the hopes that you would use them for the kingdom. Would he have to take them back from you right now? Or would he be looking for more things to put in your hands because you were using everything that you had for the kingdom? That's a real hard check for all of us, isn't it? I mean, what if we just went the ethereal route and said, we're not talking about cars, we're not talking about clothes, we're not talking about your bank account, we're talking about the teaching you've been entrusted with. (laughs) Are you spiritually constipated? (laughs) Is that what's happening? (laughs) You've been so stuffed and so stuffed and so stuffed, nothing's going anywhere? Okay. See, if we begin to see ourselves as responsible for what He's given us, not just responsible to protect, 
but responsible to use it appropriately, all of the sudden, this is a pretty darn convicting message, isn't it? Yes. When he's giving Israel the land, he expects Israel to represent him to the world. Yeah. And they did. Has he given you things that you're not using like he expected you to? No, no. Be careful how quickly you divorce yourself from that thought. Uh, I, I have a feeling that all of us are and that this could be a healthy tune-up. It turns out that if the Lord entrusts men like Caleb with an allotment because they denied themselves and did the Lord's will, that he's pleased to give Caleb rest as long as he continued with giant-killing obedience. See, he not only got his land and possessed it, but it didn't possess him. He stayed the same free-spirited giant-killer that it had always been. It didn't tame him, you know? Have you ever seen the stories of the professional boxers? I think Sylvester Stallone made a lot of money off of this. You lost something in the fight somewhere along the way, and the possessions began to own you. You know, Can you not go on a missions trip because you have to maintain all the crap you have? Stuff. All the possessions that you have. It's crap. <laughs> Peter said it's all going to burn. Crap. Peter said it's all going to burn, even the elements. You, you follow me? Can you not get away from the desk that is your provision? Because if you got away from it for a minute, your life would collapse. I thought your life didn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. It sounds like slavery. It sounds... It is. Now, here's the killer, Chris. I was maybe 25 years old. And I realized that I built the prison that enslaved me. Mm. that it was my own choices. Mm-hmm. I looked at men who could handle things that, that God had entrusted with things, and I thought I needed what they had. And so I obtained them. And before long, they had me instead of me having them. Mm. Okay? When we're talking about inheritances and allotment, you're an alien. You're a tenant. Yeah. He is the owner. And you need to put that to the test in your life. How about First John 3.16? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Listen, pity is not the goal. The goal is not to pity your brother. The goal is actions and truth. That's the goal. (laughs) It's a mistake to read this and go, well, I need to feel sorry for those that have less than me. No, they might need to feel sorry for you, because they might be rich in faith, and you're the Laodicean. Our goal needs to be actions and truth. So as we're studying the allotment of the land of Israel... I think it's natural that you reflect on your allotment. You remember that the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half of the Manassites, they cared more about their cows than their kids in the end? Yeah. I want to fight for a future. We can learn to do that from Caleb. Um, JJ, read uh, the 15th chapter, verses 9 through 13. From the hilltop, the boundary headed toward the spring of the water of Nephtoah. Came out of, at the towns of Mount Ephron and went down toward Bala, that is, 
Kiriath Jerim. Then it curved westward, westward from Bala to Mount Seir, ran along the northern slope of Mount Jerim, that is Kesalon, continued down to Beth Shemesh, and crossed to Timnah. It went to the northern slope of Ekron, turned toward Shigaron, passed along to Mount Bala, and reached Jabneel. The boundary ended at the sea. The western boundary is the coastline of the Great Sea. These are the boundaries around the people of Judah by their clans. In accordance with the Lord's command with, with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. Wow. Let's walk through some Hebrew together. Kiriath Arba. Kiriath means house of. Arba is the father of Anak. And who was Anak? Giant. Giant. A giant. Yeah. So this is the giant's daddy. That's where Caleb gets to go fight. <laughs> Not just the giant, but the papa of the giant. <laughs> of course, there's another name for it. Kiriath Sefer. Sefer in Hebrew means book. House of the book. There's one more name for it. At another point in history, it's called Debir. Debir is the way you say sanctuary. Do you mean to tell me that a place that was supposed to be a sanctuary in the house of the book was occupied by a strong man and Caleb had to go throw him out? Come on. Yeah, that's the story that we all live, isn't it? Come on. What are you fighting for? What are you contending for? And what is contending with you? Can I tell you, I'm not contending for worldly comforts. I'm contending with the house of the book. I'm contending to be in the sanctuary of God. And there are giants that are trying to keep me out. But I know that if I will kill them, then I can raise up others who will. They will watch me do it and fight for the same thing. Mm -hmm. That is the story here. I'd like to pick uh, pick up the story with you in Joshua 15, 16. Needless to say, there are more than a few remezes that are exploding hints at something deeper in these passages. Joshua 15, 16, And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sephir. Now what did Kiriath Sephir mean? Who would you give your daughter to? Who would you give your son to? It better be the one that fights to be in the house of the book. The one that will deal with the giants in his life to get in the house of the book. It better be the one that is fighting for the sanctuary of God. Because if you pick one that's good looking, if you pick one that raises cows, if you pick one that lives on the border, what's that going to do to your future generations? See, it's not enough that you know how to kill giants. You must require of those that live in your household and join to your household that they fight for these things. There have been many men of God who accomplished great things in their lifetime and raised sucky children. Because they did not require of their children what they required of themselves in their life. They raised children, they did not raise adults. I was digging here recently. And I looked at a shovel and went, why am I doing this? And I made my son do it. Because I once watched a mighty man of God 
dig a hole. It took seven hours. You could put a whole car in the hole. While his teenage kids played Xbox inside, and I thought, this is one of the biggest moral failures I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to him that he was raising pansies, and he was a giant among men. It didn't occur to him. And when I said it, he was offended by it. Saints, Caleb succeeds not just in getting the land. Caleb succeeds in making sure things happen in his daughter and his son-in-law's life that produces the future leaders of Israel. Amen. In studying the allotment of Judah's territory, preference was given to the one who would fight for the house of the book, also referred to as Debir, the sanctuary. Caleb not only fought for his inheritance, but he also took steps to ensure that his daughter would be one with a man who was defined by a battle for the Bible. His tenacious hunger for the sanctuary would be his defining attribute. We fight for the future by demanding that our children search the scripture and plant themselves in his presence. The only suitable spouse for your children is the spouse who loves the Lord more than your child. Then you give them all that you have been allotted. Caleb starts off by giving Aksa land in the Negev. She's not satisfied with just land. Catch me here. She was not a cessationist. It was good that she got the Bible and she liked that, but she wasn't going to stop there. She went to Daddy and said, i got to have a spring too. Spring up a well down in my soul. So she ends up with land and a spring and a husband who fights for the will of God with his last breath. And she and that husband lead Israel in the book of Judges. His name is Othniel. What are you fighting for? See, you can just fight to build the biggest house you've ever lived in if you want. But Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. I don't think that Proverbs is talking about your dollars and cents. Could we do some New Testament law prophets writing? Yep. <laughs> Lindsay Lou, would you take Acts 2, 38 through 39? Smiley, would you take Revelation 1, 3? And uh, Keith, take Revelation 22, 7. And Tara, take Romans 3, 1 through 2. You bored? You learning something? <laughs> yes. Learning. Seven chapters is a lot to tackle, but we're going to do it. Amen. Acts uh, 2, 38-39. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord will... The Lord our God will call. You could make the argument that you don't get filled with the Holy Ghost for you. Come on. Who do you get filled with the Holy Ghost? With the Holy Ghost for? For your children. Amen. So forgive me. If you're one of those cowardly Christians that just thinks you'll let your children work it out themselves, 
I don't think that's why you were given the Holy Ghost. After all, the Holy Spirit was the power to witness. If you can't do it with your own children, then uh, how are you going to face real problems? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be praying for every teenager in the church if your parents were praying for them. You hear me? I, we ought not have revival have to start with a teenager and then work its way up to the parents. The last to come in if they don't die first are the grandparents. They're usually the ones that are persecuting the uh, fire out of us <laughs> because we don't go to the family functions. Right? If you get filled with the Holy Ghost, that ought to be the guarantee that your children and grandchildren are filled with the Holy Ghost. But because you're going to fight for the house of the book, you're going to fight for the sanctuary of God, you'll take on every giant, teach the children to do it, and you turn into a giant killing family. Amen. That's all I got to say about that. (laughs) Uh, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. You know, this could sound like this is really out of place. Let me assure you it's not. Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy. Who was that said to? Seven churches in Turkey. Most of the events in the prophecy would not take place. Lest you're a preterist, some of the events would take place right away. Many of the events would not take place for a long, long time. So what good did it do the first generation to read them? Because the second generation would learn from the first and the third from the second and you would be well informed from early infancy about what was coming upon the world. See, the blessing in the book of Revelation is essentially a generational blessing. Because the Lord has not returned and ushered in the millennial reign. Let's take that next one from Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. You know what's better than being blessed to hear them? Blessed to keep the words. Because as you keep them, your children see it. As your children see it, they learn to keep them. See, that's a generational blessing. I want as a church for us to fight for our future. Joshua gave us something. He gave us an active, victorious faith. He gave us a heritage that we can pattern our lives after if we choose to. How about Romans 3, 1 through 2? What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Come on now. We ought to learn from our Jewish brothers. Amen. Your children ought to have every advantage because they live with a giant killing Christian whose every possession belonged to God and was used to further the kingdom. They ought not have the kind of worldly attachments that you grew up with. They ought not have to struggle with the kind of idolatry that you did because they should learn from infancy what life is really about. Are they learning that? Are you actually falling into the devil's trap by trying to provide them with more crap than you've laden your life with? We're going to come to Christmas here real shortly. And you'll be glad I leave the country every Christmas. This country makes me so nauseous for Christmas, Christmas I can't stay here. 
And nothing makes me sicker than watching Christians brag about the things that they give their children. It's like you teach them to be sacrificial all year long, and then you ruin everything that you did in a single month. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Oh, don't forget their birthday, too. Right. Yeah. This I mean, it's, honor Jesus. it's so sickening. Yeah, and we're doing it to honor Jesus, the exact opposite of the way that he lived. Wow. <clears throat> My real hope here is that there's an adjustment going on in our soul that you realize the best thing you could do for your child is teach them the joy of sacrifice, not gain. That that if you really were going to honor Jesus' birthday in the wrong month with pagan trees and all the things that we do, if that was just how, you know, you did it, that you would at least honor it in a way that reflects Jesus. I don't know how that turned into a Christmas message. Um, Let's move to the north, the south, and the Zeholophad anomaly, because nobody's interested in that, right? It's, uh, yeah, i got time, I think. When we're looking at this, Judah was the largest territory in the south. In chapters 16 and 17, they lay out Joseph's inheritances, primarily in the north. These tribes later form alliances against each other and they cause a civil war. Primarily, Joseph's descendants went north and Judah's descendants went south. Thus, we have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles. Buried in the details of the chapter 17 are Zelophad. And uh, the original incident is recorded in Numbers. And as always, Joshua faithfully carries out Moses' instruction. So I want to go and uncover something here that I think will bless you. Have you ever wondered why? Where are you at, Jen? you ever wondered why? Has there ever been a moment where you're like, just why? I know there has. She hates it when I tell her. I'm like, you're not allowed to ask why. Just rejoice. Why is unimportant. You can't wrap your mind around why, neither can I. The Lord is faithful in all he does. But every once in a while, when looking in the rearview mirror, enough time goes by that you go, ah, I can now see why. I love those times. They're a bit of an anomaly. But I can see why now. And Zolophad's one of those. You ready for a why? Numbers 27 1 through 11. Who's going to read it? Rob got his hand up first. We'll go to Caleb or Steve next. You have to remind me, though. Numbers 27, verse 1 through 11. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Heifer, the son of... Yeah, we're all guaranteed to mispronounce this terribly. I have no idea how to say it. We, you can call him ZZ Top if you want. It makes no difference. We, we know his mama would, uh, know how to say her name. Uh, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Manla, Noah, Agla, Milka, and Tirzah. Mala. Mala, not Manla. It's okay. You're doing great. Keep going. They approached. 
They approached the entrance of the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priests, the leaders, and the whole assembly, and said, Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers, who, who banded together against the Lord. But he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan? Because he had no son. Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. This, to me, uh, has a certain ring to it. you got to forgive me for the irreverence of this. It's like uh, one of those pharmaceutical commercials where you're like, and if you take this product, you will breathe better and life will be better. And then you hear all this mumbling followed by anal seepage. It's like... Yes, you'll be able to breathe, but every other thing in your life will be bad, and that's the legalese. And uh, the way that we used to say it when I was still in business was what the bold print giveth, the fine print taketh away. This sounds like legalese. Why on earth is this in the Bible? Man, this gets good. Zeholophad's daughters, number one, said... Dad died in the desert. But we don't want you to confuse him with Korah's followers who died in the desert. Dad died, but it's not like the earth ate him. Okay? <laughs> Biggest game of Pac-Man the world's ever seen. <laughs> he just died for his own sin. And do you hear? They don't have any problems saying Daddy was a sinner and that's why he died. They don't. They don't have revisionist history after his death. They go to Moses, and they're like, should our father's name disappear from Israel? Moses brings the case before the Lord, and when he does, the Lord says, Zeholophan's daughters are right. This has got to be a giant step forward for the women's movement, yeah. right? <laughs> God says the little girls are right. Mm-hmm. And then we get this, uh, you know, they're going to be allowed to inherit. There is one more requirement that is placed on them. That comes from Numbers 36, starting in verse 5. Who did I say to get that one? Uh, Steve. Go 5 through 12. Numbers 36, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord commanded Moses, Give this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is right. This is what the Lord commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please, as long as they marry within their father's tribal clan. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan, so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors. 
No inheritance may pass from one tribe to another, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. So Zelophad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. Zelophad's daughters, Mala, Tirzah, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, married their cousins on their father's side. They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's tribe. Now, I don't know who married Hogla, but I know he was a happy man. <laughs> I want to remind you that this is 15 or 1600 BC. And what we're dealing with are women's property rights. Wow. In most cultures, you couldn't even put those two sentences together. In Saudi Arabia today, you still can't put those two sentences together. You know, it was a major move the other day. Saudi Arabia stepped into the 15th century B.C., out of the 16th century B.C. They progressed a good hundred years. Now women are allowed to drive, finally. And God himself is intervening for women's property rights. Hmm. Now, I know, this seems like frivolous legal nomenclature. But when you think about this, Whose son was Jesus? Well, let's just talk about his daddy for a minute. Joseph, his stepfather, his half-dad, whatever you call him, his super-dad, were they biologically related? Joseph is descended from Judah, but how was Jesus descended from Judah? See, how could it be if he's not biologically the son of Joseph, how can he have any claim to be the lion of the tribe of Judah? He's not even genetically related to him. Jesus was born of the Holy Ghost, so nothing of Joseph made it to Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have a genealogy. It's the first chapter. And it begins with Abraham, and it works its way forward. And from Abraham, we get to David. Who doesn't love David? Do you know which son of David that genealogy goes through? Anybody? Solomon. Why? Why Solomon? Is Solomon the firstborn? Why Solomon? Can anybody answer that? He's a king! Matthew is speaking to Jews and he's giving a kingly genealogy. He is showing the way in which Joseph was descended from Abraham to David through Solomon, the next king, and right on down the line. Well, that's exciting, because that speaks to Jesus' kingship. He's the son of a king, so he's a king. But he's not biologically related to the person that he's the son of, is he? Luke, can anybody remember what Luke's, uh, Luke's title is? Like what his occupation was prior? He's a physician. Yeah, I love the physician. Let me get to Luke. Y'all turn to Luke 3. I've been reading genealogies today. Now, where Matthew starts with Abraham and comes down to uh, Joseph, Luke uh, starts with Joseph and goes all the way back to Adam. He was pretty thorough, Luke was. Verse 23, 323. 
Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Uh, The son of Heli, the son of Method, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and a bunch of sons up there, right? Well, Matthew 1.16 says that Joseph is the son of Jacob. So which is it? Did he have two dads? This gets to be so much fun. Now slide down to verse 31. The son of Meli, the son of Mena, the son of Methi, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Let me break this down for you. We have... Get my glasses off. We have from David... Upline the same genealogy in both places. But at David, Matthew's genealogy takes us through Solomon. In this one, Luke's genealogy takes us through Nathan. Not Nathan the prophet, Nathan the son of David. And they're different from here on down. And they both arrive at Joseph. Some of this has to do with the way that the Jews write genealogies, but a lot more of it's got to do with Zolophet. What happens here is Matthew, seeking to show that Jesus is kingly, takes us through David to Solomon and on down to Joseph, thus Jesus the king. For that to be true, one of his parents needs to be descended through Solomon. Luke seeking to show us Jesus' humanity, takes us all the way back to Adam, but brings us to David, and then goes through Nathan. Now, it's not possible that the same parent is descended through two different brothers, is it? Is it possible for you to be a son and a son-in-law, though? Watch what happens here. Joseph is not uh, Jesus' biological Father, So Jesus has no claim to be the lion of the tribe of Judah through Joseph. But Mary, who apparently was the son of Heli, as Luke lists here, she has a claim to all of her father's inheritance if there were no sons. Do you know why? Because Moses asked the Lord about it in one verse. He brought the case before the Lord. I want to read this to you and I'll come back and make sure you got it. Check this out. Jesus was born to Mary, whose father was Heli. Heli had no other children, and his daughter Mary would receive his inheritance in Judah as long as she married a man from Judah. Uh, Numbers 27 and verse 5 says, So Moses brought the case before the Lord. I want you to get this for a minute. If you don't have Zeholophad's daughters being um, fatherless and brotherless, then you don't have anybody coming to Moses going, Hey, Moses, what do we do about women's inheritance rights? And Moses wouldn't then turn to the Lord and say, Hey, what do we do? And the Lord said, The girls are right. But because we have a family that has no father and no brothers... We have this one verse. So Moses brought the case before the Lord. 
and the Lord decides on behalf of the girls. This means that if Luke is Mary's genealogy, and what we're saying is that Heli was Joseph's father-in-law, which the Hebrew not only allows us to do, since we're talking about inheritance, it is how Jesus claims to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is his mom married within the tribe, and he had no uncle. Right? Yeah. Y'all following me? Yes. yes. What that means is that this one verse in the Bible, all Jesus claims, <laughs> hang on. Wow. Because if he's descended only through Joseph, Goodness. he cannot be the lion of the tribe of Judah or the scepter that would rise out of Judah. <coughs> he shared no biological content from Judah. But who did he share an umbilical cord with? Mary. And Mary's daddy was from Judah, and God kept Mary's daddy uh, from having a son. So Mary got to inherit all of the lineage because of the Zeholophad anomaly. What this means is that you can have no Jesus, you can have no Davidic kings, you can have no lion of the tribe of Judah worthy to open the seals if you don't first have Zeholophad's daughters in great need. And Moses, who brought the case before the Lord. Goodness. You know, it's such a small verse. It's such a, such a little thing. It seems like such a frivolous detail. What is there in your life that seems like a frivolous detail? Something that you just don't know why. Why did that happen that way? That when we look back on it, when we can look through generation after generation from Abraham to David and David to the present, we will see that our whole existence hung on an event that we didn't have the ability to understand yet. Oh, come on, that's beautiful. The Zeholophad anomaly provides for the Davidic kingship of Jesus. He's not only descended from the kings... He has property rights to all of Judah. And he was born to a Jewish mother, so he has the blood rights to it as well. That's beautiful. And what did it hang on? So Moses brought the case before the Lord. Is there something you need to bring before the Lord tonight? Because there are no frivolous details with the Lord. He makes no mistakes, and he has no plan B. If... If he left you without a brother, or he left a father without a son, it might be because 25 generations later, that exception would make way for salvation for the world. The plans of God are so far beyond us that you can sometimes only understand them in retrospect. Next time you're just so upset and clenching your fist and saying why, realize you're not big enough to know why. But one day you will. Even the angels long to look into these things. Can you imagine the heavenly pantheon standing around, you know? Like, what are Zeholophat's daughters whining about, you know? I, is the Most High really going to issue a ruling in this? I mean, they're just daughters. But the salvation of the world depended upon it. That's incredible, don't you think? All right, that's the Zeholophat the, 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 the anomaly. I want to show you something on the screen. 
this will make this uh, uh, help you here, hopefully. So on the screen, on the, on the screen. Uh, this is a map of our tribal allotments. Make it big, and we'll go north to south, or south to north. How about that? Can you all see it? Yep. Okay, southern Israel. You see Judah there. Yes. Simeon, trapped inside of Judah. Off to the right, Reuben, squeezed up next against Moab. Those are the east uh, Transjordanian tribes. Right next to that, uh, Gad. See how they're east of the Jordan? Yes. Where you see, uh, I circled 39. I meant to circle 40. Can you see the 40 in the center of the screen? Yes. That's where Shiloh is, which is our next topic, is Shiloh and the seven parts and the lot. You can see Ephraim, and right under Ephraim is Dan and Benjamin. Kind of interesting um, that Benjamin is the full brother of Joseph, but Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, do you see how big their tribal inheritances are? And Benjamin squeezed in there? Okay. Uh, as we go forward, going north, do you see Issachar in yellow? Zebulun in blue? Asher in purple? East Manasseh and Naphtali? How they're up there by Galilee? That's referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles in the Bible. I want to show you a few things about this map real quick. But first, somebody read... Chapter 18 and verse 1. It's easier to read that map than uh, try to decipher all the ancient town names, isn't it? Yes. Thought I'd show you the map. 18.1. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. What happens in this chapter is Joshua uh, goes and sets up the tent of meeting... In central Israel, which is, uh, again, number 40 on the screen, right in the center, um, right between what would become the northern tribes and the southern tribes, so that all Israel can meet there. Uh, something else happens, though. Let's see if I can find this. Read Joshua 18.3. So Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord... The God of your fathers has given you. There are seven tribes that did not take the initiative to go and fight. They had to be told. And so what he does is he takes three people from each one of the tribes. He tells them, go out, survey the land, come back and tell us about it. So he'd have 21 surveys to choose from. Then they go to the tent of meeting and they have a Yahtzee game. And uh, they... they Shoot craps to decide who gets what. I mean, it's, it's throwing lots before the Lord. And not only do I not recommend this, look at the seven tribes. This is how they got their allotment. One is Benjamin, two is Simeon, three is Zebulun, then Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. Benjamin, the very first one, who we could say suffered from uh, apathy, He's assigned a spot infinitely smaller than Ephraim or Manasseh. And yet, he's a full brother. They're grandsons who are counted the same. Anybody find disparity in that? Maybe Ephraim and Manasseh went out and fought for theirs, though. Okay, Simeon is landlocked inside of Judah. 
<laughs> is that crazy? Yeah. But Simeon didn't go out and fight for his. I mean, he did after the lots were cast. Zebulun, Issachar, Aster, Naphtali, they all get grouped together, and they get the beautiful moniker in Matthew 4, 15 as Galilee of the Gentiles. Dan is the last to receive his inheritance. Dan has serious biblical problems. He's not even mentioned in the book of Revelation. And look at his little spot over here. You know what Dan is the um, birthplace of? Idolatry. Uh, They set up uh, goat gods there. Dan does decide to go fight for something, though. He eventually goes, Cass, we're going to go to this place, to Caesarea Philippi. That's way up here. Uh... Near where Mount Hermon is. Can y'all see Mount Hermon at the top of the screen? Way away from Dan's territory. He goes up there and fights. You know what Caesarea Philippi goes down in history as? The gates of hell and the seat of Roman idolatry. That's where Jesus stood and said, "Uh, Who do men say that I am? Nowhere that Dan put his foot worked out well. Okay? That's a bit of a problem. I'm going to come back to that and just show you some notes as we go here. Can you tell that Joshua is frustrated? How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the, of the land that the Lord, your, the, the God of your fathers has given you? You can sense his frustration in what he's saying. How long are you, it's okay. How long are you going to wait to start? But what would the Holy Ghost say to us about the Great Commission? Do you need a Holy Ghost dice game before you'll go? I mean, the people who waited the longest received, I'm not saying it's not a good inheritance, but they didn't receive what the ones that went out and took the initiative and fought for it. And to some extent, God determined these things. To another extent, it was based on their initiative. Remember, some chose based on where their cows could graze. Okay? I think there's a reason Judah gets what he gets. Proverbs 10.5 He who gathers crops in the summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Now, I know that's talking about harvest and not tribal allotments, but this, this has always gripped my heart. Uh, I'm trying to raise godly sons. I, I, it's full view and examination of everybody here. I, I hope you're pleased with what you see. I'm more pleased every day. Nothing would break my heart more than the thought that I was a disgraceful son. And how how do you get termed disgraceful? You sleep during the great harvest. Jesus didn't ask us to pray for a bigger harvest, did he? What did he ask us to pray for? Harvesters. Harvesters, workers. What does that mean? That means most of them are disgraceful sons. They're asleep. What's it going to take to wake us up to the harvest? Do you think maybe our possessions have lulled us to sleep? Our responsibilities have lulled us to sleep? Do you have a responsibility greater than doing what God has said to do? No. Maybe that's why it's good for us to sell our possessions and go. Maybe they've been in our way. Uh, I want to show you one more time, then we're going to go through another scripture string. I know it's getting late, but you're going to want this. See Zebulun up there? Asher, Naphtali. You can see the tribal allotments. Now you're beginning to understand why it's cumbersome to read these chapters out loud and uh, explain them 
exegesis style. Because do you see how the borders are, are not square or fluid? They go to gorges. They go to mountains. You, you know who both liked mountainous territories? It's, you can't make this up. Both Joshua and Caleb climbed mountains and killed giants. The others preferred flatter, fertile areas. I'm, I'm not kidding. Those two men specifically asked for the steepest mountains in Israel where giants were inhabiting so they could kill them. Amen. It turns out that God likes people who want to climb mountains and kill giants. Amen. And he'll bless somebody who doesn't, but he doesn't bless them quite the same way. I'm just, just telling you. Okay? You can kill that, Wade. Yes, Wade, you can kill it. That's you, man. Okay. This idea that he who gathers crops in the summer is wise, but he who's sleeping during the harvest is a disgraceful son reminds me that time is short and we should be diligent. And uh, I've been joking with a couple brothers. We're talking about preterist, partial preterist, dominion theology. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. Uh, just suffice it to say your end times camp will be shaken anytime you debate with somebody who's serious on the other side of the fence. And that's good. It should be that way. The scripture presents the overwhelming feeling that time is short. Now, that's been true in every generation, okay? And if you believe that time was short in the first century, there's only one conclusion you can come to now. Time's shorter, <laughs> right? I want to read y'all a couple of these. This is 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. If it was time to prepare for action then, what is it now? Past time to prepare for action. James 2.17 In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Who showed more faith? Those that took the initiative to fight? are those that had to be goaded into a dice game to get their inheritance. Mm. I've noticed something. i got a lot of sons, and uh, I'm working to raise up spiritual sons, and I've been an employer and many times in my life. There are some people that you tell to do something, they waste no time, they go to do it immediately. There are others that go contemplate it for a while, and there's a third group that hopes just to wait you out. Like, if I don't do anything, good or bad, if I just squat, surely, eventually, this will just work itself out. I kind of get the impression those seven tribes, which, by the way, is more than 50% of 12 tribes, just thought, maybe if we don't do anything, it'll work out. Well, it did, but not as well as it did for the brothers that fought. Revelation 1. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. How long can we delay when the word says it must soon take place? I, I couldn't help but reflect on John 9. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. 
since you don't know when night is going to fall for you, since that speaks of death, might as well work while you've got some breath, huh? Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It was John 9, 4. The problem was ultimately solved by lots at Shiloh. Okay, All seven tribes get their inheritance because God's faithful to his word even when people aren't faithful. And the lot falls in the lap of the Lord when it's cast. We know that from Proverbs 16.33. But I prefer to believe that it would have been better to settle it with a little godly initiative and steering of the Holy Ghost. I mean... How about they just pick up a sword and walk in a direction and let God tell them left or right? Certainly if you have faith to believe that whichever way the lot falls is God's will, whichever way you walk could be God's will, huh? What are you waiting on? Do you need a dream where you're playing Yahtzee with God? Or could you just try to evangelize and step out and see what he blesses and wherever you find that vein of blessing, keep running in it. Everything that this ministry has accomplished, and maybe that's not that much. Uh, I, I don't know. You, you, you have to look at that yourself and evaluate it. It's accomplished because when we felt the Lord blessing something, we didn't stop doing it. We just Amen. kept doing it. It's amazing what the Lord will do with a little persistence and faithfulness. Amen. Even in the absence of any aptitude. You know, I don't speak the language of any country that I went to. Um, most of them, I had no idea who we were going to meet there. The one that Man and Cassidy are going to in a few days, we were not sure we were not going to be killed and eaten. I mean, we, that, that sounds extreme to you. Not extreme to my wife back there. I mean, we hit a satellite phone in a bag. We had an emergency plan. We didn't know what was going to happen. But once we found something that we thought the Lord blessed, we, we're still going back. And when we can't go anymore, God raises up somebody else to... What have you found that you are so faithful to that even if you can't do it, you'd pay for somebody else to go do it? Amen. See? Are you just standing back hoping that there's some kind of dice game that works this all out? Even if they had no idea what to do, then at least it could have been their idea to go to the tent of meeting for the dice game. I mean, think about that for a minute. If you can live with the fact that men of God are throwing dice to determine his will. Certainly you ought to still be insulted by the fact that Joshua had to tell him to even do that. It's like the computer guy said to his buddy, you know, I can explain this to you, but I can't understand it for you. We can teach what to do, but we can't want it for you. You're going to have to provide the want to. I hear all the time, how do I study the word? Well, it starts by opening the word. Like, it's it's not going to happen until you start. How do I evangelize? Well, tell me how you're doing it, and then we'll have a real conversation. If you're not doing it, then there's nothing for us to discuss. Somewhere or another, they had to start. These seven didn't, and I don't know. If I was them, I wouldn't be real happy with their inheritance. The tent of meeting remained at Shiloh in central Israel until the time of David in 2 Samuel 6. That's a long time. What happened in 2 Samuel 6? Uzzah reached out, tried to steady the ark, right? Uh, The work of Joshua paved the way for all future work. He literally established where the tent of meeting would be. 
we're all standing on somebody's shoulders. And we need to make sure that we're taking respons- our responsibility seriously for those coming after us that will need to stand on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. When you think about Joshua's decision, do you remember how Moses with Zelophad, he makes way for Jesus to have a tribal inheritance? Mm-hmm. Well, Joshua putting the tent at Shiloh makes way for a young man named Samuel to be raised up at Shiloh, who of course raises up the kings. You, you see how one generation's obedience causes something for the rest? Shiloh's greatest figure is Samuel. 1 Samuel 3.19 The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. In all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, recognized that Samuel was attested to as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. What a beautiful passage. For that to happen, Joshua had to first go in, whip everybody at Shiloh, and put a tent there and call it a tent of meeting. What are you doing that paves the way for people to meet with the Lord and his word behind you? See, Caleb did this so that his daughter and his son-in-law could carry on a legacy that he only began. You know, it's probably too late to think about retirement when you're 66, like you've got whatever you got. It's probably too late to think about them standing on your shoulders in the last week of your life. You know, when's the time to think about it? Right now. What are you handing them? Are you conquering ground, teaching them to conquer ground, and turning it over to them? This is what's been wrong with American ministries. They, when a pastor manages to accomplish something, he has no successor. Our accomplishment is our successors. Amen. Amen. All right. You ready for the seventh mini-sermonette? This was so good. I've never noticed this before, and it's so plainly right there in the text. Curtis, would you read Joshua 19, verse 49? Israel into the promised land? Who was one of two only faithful people from the time that he left Egypt to the time that they got the inheritance? Who gave every other tribe their inheritance? Who was last to get their inheritance? Leaders go last. And when they put themselves first, they're not leaders. I love that Joshua is the last recorded inheritor. Every other Israelite got theirs before he took his. Amen. Come on now. Amen. That's beautiful. I want to share with you a short scripture string, and then we'll close our meeting. So uh, Judah, take Genesis 50, verse 24 and 25. Abimbola. Daniel 12, 13. Justin Treister, Matthew 21, 
42. Peyton, Revelation 6, 11. Chris, would you read uh, Hebrews 11, 39, and 40? Genesis 50, 24, and 25. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, then you must carry my bones up from this place. Joseph was a leader, and he knew that other Israelites would reach the promised land before he would. He just wanted them to carry his old bones in. Amen. See, this is the attitude that we need of self-denial. It says, if I die trying, at least others can crawl over my corpse to get there. Maybe they'll drag me across the line too. Amen. Okay. Amen. The end of self-promotion. The exaltation of self-sacrifice. We're going to build a spiritual kingdom instead of a carnal one. Amen. Joshua was the, the person that most, that should have felt in the natural, most entitled to pick first. And he went last. Even after the dice throwing weenies. Think about that. He might have been kind of frustrated at that point. You seven pansy children, you know, go to the tent of meeting, we'll throw dice because you'll never do this and I promise not to take mine until you get yours. I mean, it had to have been hard because he was a giant killer. They were dandelion killers. Okay, who had the next one? Daniel 12, verse 13. As for you, go your way to the end. You will rest, and then all the end of your days will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. All of Daniel's hard work. And friends, he might have been made a eunuch for the kingdom. All his hard work, and he doesn't get his inheritance. He's got to wait for you. It's, it, yeah. When you think on who's waiting for you to succeed before they get theirs, you might decide, we've been waiting too long. Okay? What's next? Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The <laughs> Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Rejected. Suffering rejection. When does he get his place in the building? The end. Really. Capstone. The end. Mm-hmm. And we read that as like the ultimate, right? It's also last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yes, he does save the best for last, but it's still last. Mm. What is yeah. waiting on you? What is waiting on you to take action? Mm-hmm. Daniel can't get his resurrection until you finish your work. Joseph's bones can't come alive in the land of Israel till you finish your work. Joshua refused to take his inheritance till they all got theirs. What is waiting on you? Wait, our next one. Revelation six eleven. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been uh, as they as they had been was completed 
Our friends burned alive by ISIS, heads chopped off, raped and murdered, and they're waiting on you to finish your work before they receive their glorified body. Do we really have time to wait? See, that's a different perspective, isn't it? Now tell the Lord that you can't because you're still paying for your TV you financed. Chris, you got one? Hebrews eleven thirty nine. Is that the Chris? I well, I'm sorry, any Chris. We'll take one of two Chris's. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Get this: Joshua waited till last to receive his physical inheritance. <coughs> He won't receive his spiritual inheritance until you receive yours first. That's crazy. That's unfair in every sense of the word. It's almost obnoxious to think that Joshua doesn't get glorified until we finish our work. I hope that it motivates you to at least begin. Doesn't it? Yes. Listen. It's not my goal for you to feel smaller as you hear these words. It's my goal for you to feel more responsible. The other way to think about this is when you finish your work, Joshua gets rewarded for his. Amen. So Holofad's daughters may seem like they had such a small part to play. But I imagine those three little girls four little girls that it was scary for them to go ask Moses this had never been done before and they asked and those four or five little words there Moses brought his case before the Lord paved the way for the Messiah what detail has the Lord given you that seems frivolous and you don't know why but if you would just shut up and do it or speak up and do it Whichever the case may be. It paves the way for guys like Joshua and Daniel to be resurrected. I believe that we're standing on the shoulders of great men before us. And I'm horrified by the thought men after us are going to have to stand on our shoulders. And I just want to leave them better than we found them. That's it. Could you stand to your feet? Amen.